Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this is our second apocalypse of the year so far, and it's still only January. My guest is CJ Tudor. She's often billed as Britain's answer to Stephen King, the queen of the spooky thriller, but this time she's here to talk about a very different kind of novel. The Drift is a move right into the heart of the horror genre. There are many, many bodies hitting the floor in this book, some from a viral plague that's ravaged CJ's fictional earth, others from more purposefully murderous interventions. It's a nasty, gnarly book that may shock those more familiar with CJ's homelier crime thrillers. We talk about loads of things, from genre expectations, to failed novels, to grief, to TV adaptation. But the pandemic and the social fissures it exposed are a dominant theme. But don't worry, because CJ adds rage zombies to lighten the mood. <laughs> Remember, if you want more Talking Scared, there is the Patreon channel. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and get loads of cool exclusive stuff, including the latest Whispers episode with Phil Fracassi and other recent guests telling their real-life ghost encounters. But for now, come with me on a ski lift ride up a very lonely mountain. What waits at the top and back down below? Well, it's nothing good. Let's talk scared. Hi, CJ, and welcome back to Talking Scared. How are things? Hello, well, thank you for having me back. Um, yeah, they are good, actually. They're not bad at the moment. Good to hear. We've, uh, we've had to finagle this to find a slot, but we've got one. So We did. But, They're busy, busy. Yeah. There's always a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, as I, as I warned you, I'll warn the listeners. I've got a very kind of self-indulgent, poorly whinging dog at the side of me. So if you hear some whining, don't worry. <laughs> he's, he's been a drama queen. Um, but, right, it's been almost precisely two years since you last came on the show. Um, I know, time flies in a pandemic, right? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, you know, you're one of the most kind of dependable authors out there in the wild. You deliver a sort of barnstorming thriller at the start of most <laughs> years to help us endure January. I know that went a little bit off-piste in 2022, and we can yes. talk about that if you want, but... You know, if you can't have a publishing hurdle in the middle of a global health crisis, when can you? <laughs> and speaking of global pandemics, you're kind of back with a novel that, that features one, The Drift. Yeah, just to cheer everybody up. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I've got a question about that. I think it's a very different book for you. It's one that maybe moves the parameters a little on what readers mm. normally expect from you. And that's that, I think that's as an interviewer, that's always thrilling. Uh, the book is called The Drift, and I have many thoughts and questions on where you've taken your writing with this one. But let's start with an introduction. Can you tell us what we need to know about this book? Yes. Well, you know, the, the, the weird thing is the idea for The Drift actually came about way back in 2019, probably sort of autumn time then when I had the idea for it for various reasons. I didn't get to write it in 2019. I mean, a little bit of background to the book because we talked about sort of, I didn't put a book out in 2022. And that was kind of tied up with the same thing, really. Um, I kind of had already pitched a different book to my publishers at the time, which would have been the book that was published in 2022. Um, and they were, because as we just said, The Drift is a slight departure. And I think they were keen to go with something a little bit more 
on brand, as they say, um, first before sort of sort of making that move. And, and so I was quite happy to sort of go and write this other book and kind of, you know, sort of keep the drift as my next sort of nice thing to look forward to. Um, and then, interestingly, <laughs> for all of us, the pandemic happened and lockdowns and the world kind of went a bit weird and crazy. And, you know, I found myself sort of, you know, working at home, but also, you know, our little girl was at home, so doing homeschooling. And it was all a bit odd. And it was it was just a, even though there wasn't other stuff going on, it, it seemed like it was more of a struggle to find the time to write. And I think a little bit from the off with this book, I don't know whether it was just the situation. I found it much harder to get my mojo and kind of more importantly, the voice for the book. And then in early 2021, when I was sort of maybe two thirds of the way through that book, I lost my dad. And I think sometimes you don't really realise that things are as hard as they are because you kind of got to get on with what you're doing. You know, I had a book to finish. I had to get on with this book. And the book, the writing got harder. I sort of had this knot of anxiety when I had to write this book. And it got to the point where I sort of, I finished it and sent it off to my editors. Um, and they came back with a lot of notes. <laughs> so I kind of got this feeling that it wasn't just me that had a bad feeling about this book. But I, for the first time ever, I couldn't go back to it. Normally, I'm quite happy with edits. But I just couldn't. I could not go back to this book. I I physically thought the thought of it made me sort of feel sick. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've grown to hate it because it was tied up with like everything that was was wrong. The whole pandemic, losing my dad. It was all kind of tied up with this book that I now hated. And I just never wanted to see it again. Um, and so I had to have a very honest conversation with my editors about that and say, look, I can't put this book out. I hate it. I'm not happy with even if I did a lot of work on it, you know, if, if I forced myself to, I don't think it would be a book that I wanted to put out for people to read because I just don't think it's there. Um, and could I please basically scrap it and and work on something that I am more passionate about and I think would perhaps get my writing mojo back? Um, and that book was The Drift. Um, and in between, I did put, put out a book of short stories because I sort of had quite a few short stories sitting there and I wanted to put something out in 2022. So I wrote a few new ones and used some some ones I already had there and went back to the drift, which I eventually wrote in. Well, it would have been. Yeah, I started that in 2021 after I'd sort of, you know, confessed that I could not put the other book, the book that never was um, out. So that's that's kind of the background to the drift. Um, So what is the drift about, you ask? (laughs) And as I said, it's a it is a departure. Um, I wanted to do something different. And perhaps that was always there burning in my heart when I was trying to write this other book as well. Um, And I think everything that happened obviously made that much harder to do. Um, So when I sort of sat down to write The Drift, I felt quite freed in a weird way because I knew that I didn't have to put a book out in 2022. I had a bit more time to kind of work on it. And it was something different. And when I originally had the idea for The Drift, it started because the original thought was, what's the smallest locked room mystery you could write? And because there's been a lot of locked room mysteries um, and my mind was just thinking about something that could make it weird and different. And I originally thought of a cable car because I thought, well, that's just that's such a you know a stranded cable car would be a great locked room mystery with a group of people and a killer and a body, you know, because there's literally kind of nowhere to go except maybe out and down. And that was the first thought. And then I thought, well, that's not enough. That's perhaps not enough to sustain a novel. So perhaps what about kind of more than one locked room mystery that's somehow connected. And my mind started working on this sort of snowy location and this stranded cable car. But then perhaps we've got this overturned coach that has crashed in the snowstorm. And then we also have this isolated kind of chalet where the sort of inhabitants are kind of stranded because of this snowstorm as well. 
And there's these three groups of people and there's kind of something bad and weird going on within each group and they're somehow connected. And that was the original thought. But going on from that, my mind started going, well, there has to be another reason that why they're in this situation and why is no one coming to rescue them? You know, what, what's happened that they're stranded and they're not expecting to be rescued? And so from that, I started to kind of build this world where basically it's a post-apocalyptic world in a way. And, you know, society has kind of broken down because of this viral pandemic. And that's why they're in this situation. They're either trying to escape something or get to safety. Um, and, you know, their situation is even more precarious because of that. And within each group, there are odd things you start to realise, like in, in, our, in the crashed coach, the driver has disappeared. In the cable car, you know, the, the people that w- they wake up there not knowing each other, not knowing why they're on the cable car. And then there's a dead body. And then in the chalet, it increasingly becomes obvious that it's not just a chalet where these people are kind of working. There's something else going on um, in the chalet's depths that's being kept hidden. So each kind of story has its secrets that unfold and they all join together to form, as the the novel goes on, to sort of form a greater, greater picture. Um, And as I say, I had the idea in 2019. So in a weird way, when when we did have our real pandemic, I felt kind of weirdly prophetic, Mm. not in a good way. Um, And then, of course, when I'd finished it, you know, when, when I was writing it, there was the thought that, oh, God, will people want to read about something that has this as a backdrop? And it is very much a backdrop to the main story to be honest, and to set up the scene of why these characters are where they are. Um, but hopefully, I think people will view it almost like a parallel world or a, or a world of what what could have been if, you know, things had gone in a different direction. Um, and so, so, yeah, that was sort of really the thinking all behind it. Um, and it is a departure. It is much more of a horror thriller than kind of more of that small-town mystery with a supernatural element. It's a bigger novel, I hope. Mm. Um, and I really had, despite everything, I had a ball writing it because I was able to put a lot of that experience into the book. And actually, I don't think it would have hopefully had as much as much depth or been as vivid if we hadn't lived through COVID, to be honest, because I could put a lot of that into the book. So, yeah, that is the drift. Not in a nutshell. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> we've got your drift. Terrible pun. <laughs> so w- what you've basically done there, right, is answered every question I have. So... <laughs> I, 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 I could just, yeah, I could just put this out as a nine-minute podcast. But what what I'll probably do is go back and and sort of pick out some of the stuff you you riffed on there. So yes. don't think I'm kind of asking you to repeat yourself. It's just that you've alluded to quite a lot of interesting stuff. I have a tendency to ramble. No, not at all. It's quite a crisis. If people didn't want to talk, this would be a whole lot on me. <laughs> but but let let me think where to jump back into that then. So so let's lead off by talking about the experience of of writing this quite quite aside i suppose from well maybe not aside but at least in parallel with the actual pandemic because yes you're somebody as you've alluded to as far as at least your publishers maybe were concerned that you know you had a brand and i was yes. i think that brand is is kind of well established if you look at your previous stuff although there is ample variety in there um and i would say it's kind of you know something that is nominally as the the structure of a crime thriller um, inflected with gothic elements and a a tinge or or more than a tinge of the potential supernatural Um, reading this book it feels exactly like your tone and voice in the main uh, but it could be more different in a lot of other aspects did changing the genre 
change the writing experience, either, I don't know, imaginatively or, or in terms of practically how you sat down and wrote the damn thing? Yeah, it did in some ways. I mean, I, I felt really freed up to write this one um, in a weird way. And perhaps that's just because I'd managed to, to, it, to put a lot of the headaches of the previous book behind and kind of I, I felt like I could really strike out. And so I kind of went into it in a strange way, in, in, almost more like writing short stories, because, you know, short stories tend to free you up. You can write something a bit different. And I felt a little bit like that going into this novel. I really wanted to write something different. I'm not the sort of writer who wants to write the same book again and again. And I was really ready for sort of a challenge. Um, and the book is quite complex as well. I mean, normally I kind of dive in. I'm very much a panster. I dive in and just see where the, the book is going. And then I, I do a lot of editing. This one, I had to be a little bit more disciplined because there's essentially three stories in one. Each each narrative is self-contained mm-hmm. and they all they also all come together. Um, so I, I wrote them all as three self-contained narratives. So we have Meg, who was trapped in the cable car. We have Hannah, who is in this overturned coach, slowly getting buried in a snowstorm with, with no way to get out for various reasons. The ways that they should be able to get out, they can't. Um, and then we have Carter, who is in this isolated chalet, which is perhaps more than just an isolated chalet, we soon come to realise. Um, but I wanted each of their narratives to be a self-contained story in a way. And I say then link the threads together. Um, so I wrote them separately and I kind of wrote them backwards as well. I kind of wrote the end first, which was really nice, actually, because I knew exactly how it was going to finish. So everything I was writing in between was, was in a way, was filling in the gaps. And, and it was important for me to have the ending on this one. Because I say, it's quite a complex book. There's a lot going on. Um, you know, it's, a, it's essentially three locked room mysteries. So they, they all have to have their drama and their reveals and their cliffhangers because there are mysteries going on with each within each group. But they all then have to work together. So it was a challenge, but I like a challenge. And I, th- I remember saying to my agent, actually, when we were talking about it, I said, you know, I know it's different. I know it's a bit of a genre shift. And I know it's a bit of a, a head screwer. <laughs> but... I think I can pull it off and I think I would have a lot of fun doing it. And I did have a lot of fun doing it. I think sometimes you've just got to let that, if you know, if if you've got, you know, a story you feel passionate about, even if it's a bit different from what you were doing previously, you just got to go with it because then, you know, you will love writing it. And I did love, despite it being probably my my most dark and it's quite brutal in places. And I say it does lean far more towards horror. I really did have a ball writing it. (laughs) Obviously, you you had the idea pre-pandemic, but you were writing it in the like the furnace of the pandemic as well and I, I i am i suppose i'm kind of surprised that maybe it's my hypochondriacal nature that i think if i was immersed in this stuff i'd just be horrified like i'd need a break from it <laughs> but because you know on on the one hand it seems obvious that if you were going to shift into horror at that time you would you would write about a virus because we're in the middle of a global health crisis but on the other hand it seems that the last thing you'd want to write about because we're in the middle of a global health crisis, you know? Yeah. So I, I am intrigued by the enjoyment aspect. It was a tricky balance, I think. Because at the time I came to writing this, it was about April 2021. So we were kind of, I think, heading out of the, mm. the really the worst of the pandemic by that point. Um, and I did, you know, obviously I did have second thoughts when I sat down to write it, you know, and I knew it, you know, it wouldn't come out until 2023. And my mind was going, well, hopefully, you know, we're, we're on our way out. I don't think you're ever really on your way out. You know, it's something we, we you know, we are, we are trying to live with. Um, and, you know, hopefully people have a little bit of distance by then. But, I mean, it is very much, 
it's not set kind of in our pandemic, if that makes sense. It's mm. very much a backdrop. It's very much it's set in the near future. I'm not specific. And I, and I do like to describe it as kind of a parallel world in a way. Um, and it does form a backdrop to the story. It's not really the story, but it doesn't form the story because of, you know, why these people are where they are. Um, and it, maybe in a way it got a lot of stuff out. It was it was I had perhaps just enough distance by then to think about kind of the way people deal with it. You know, we, we'd been through this big catastrophe, this this pandemic. And, and, and had had it gone as it has had, had it been worse, should I say? Yeah, had it been worse, you know, had it had kind of gone to the, you know, even worse than it was, you know, what would have happened? Is it, it was easy to see even during sort of, you know, the time we we had to experience it, you know, how how people's reactions slowly change in something like that and how divisions occur in how people want to deal with something, whether it's, you know, down to, down to wearing masks and vaccines and, and people who feel that they should be able to get on with their lives because they're not necessarily at risk and others who feel that, you know, we should all be trying to, protect each other and and different attitudes and I think at the start interestingly people were very much more together on it Mm. and I think as it went on those divisions occurred and I think that will always happen and it was interesting to kind of take that idea to the extreme you know um, that extreme idea of survival because ultimately much as we all like to think we're nice decent people and I think most people are we, we do try to look out for others but essentially we're also quite selfish you know, when it comes down to it, it's us and our perhaps immediate close family that we want to protect. And I think we get we would get selfish about that. And it would be a case of protecting those people, even at the expense of others. And and, and ultimately, you know, as, as human beings, we're programmed to survive, to keep on living. You know, that's essentially what we're kind of programmed to do. So it was interesting to take it to the extremes within this sort of environment that my characters find themselves in. And I think, you know, one of the, the things in the book is that someone says a survival is a lonely business. Yeah, there are lots of good quotes in this book. I'm going to pick some out in a, in a while. Um, but just before we go any further, but just a bit of a context clue, right? Yes. Am I? This may be utterly stupid. <laughs> Forgive me if it is. <laughs> but you're purposefully, as you said, kind of slightly vague and distant from the yes. details of the virus. I, I couldn't help but read it at times as if it was COVID. Am I right in that? I think it's it's certainly similar to I would I, I, you know it, it obviously you know is kind of based upon that but I say I try to think of it almost like a parallel right. kind of world or or a, a world where we go what might have happened if things had really gone to crap you know yeah. um, and I think that's the, the way I sort of based it upon because um, obviously there are parallels and there are similarities um, certainly with the whistlers. Um, mm. And I did draw on COVID quite a lot for for my virus, I, I guess. I did do quite a lot of research on things like, you know, blood plasma and all that kind of stuff. But it but it's not supposed to be, in a way, our world and our pandemic. It's maybe, you know, a fictional version of what could have been, perhaps, or in a parallel world. A dark shadow, I think I called it, to, when I was describing it to someone else. Okay. So I don't think they're going to go in there and, and, and feel it. it's very close to what we went through, because it's not, you know? Yeah. It, it's very much not. It's hopefully some distance apart from that but it i think it does you know allow us to to think about you know perhaps you know what could have been or might have been yeah because you, you mentioned the whistlers there we, we won't whistle it too much but there how uh, to put this in a way that keeps the intrigue um basically there are <laughs> there are there are different uh, uh consequences to catching sort of different yes. variations of this virus yes uh, and some parts are very much kind of captain tripped from the stand and other parts are a little bit more 28 days later is all we'll, we'll mm-hmm. say shall we yes 
yeah, that, there are different ways you can you can be ill in this world. Yes. Before we get into some of the kind of thematic stuff, because um, some of the stuff you said that about the divisions uh, between people's reactions are what really make the various lot rooms in this book interesting. But I do want to ask, but I don't want to pry more than you're comfortable with. No. You know, you, you lost your dad in the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. That must have played a major part in writing this book. I mean, I know you said you enjoyed the process, mm. but surely that was a real sort of looming absent presence or present absence over your head when you're writing this. Yeah, I think it's definitely there. And I, I write a lot about loss in the book. All the people, all the main characters in the book have have lost people, you know. So obviously that was that was there all along. And I think, you know, the book deals in, in sort of all the characters and their different situations. They're kind of informed by how they've dealt with loss, basically. Um, Meg, Hannah and Carter have all experienced loss of different types. And it's, it's shaped their characters. And the book is, in a, in a way, about how they deal with that. You know, how they how they survive, you know, dealing with those losses. And they all have very different ways of doing it. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it was it was obviously always there, not perhaps always at the forefront of my mind, but definitely there. I think it's a strange thing when you when you lose someone important and, and particularly a parent as well. It's kind of. You you sort of de- you, you deal with it, but you don't deal. It's, it's a weird thing. And I think I was speaking to a friend of mine who lost her dad not that long before I lost my dad. And, and I think grief finds you when you're not thinking about it in a mm. weird way you know it's not sometimes at the moments where you should be grief stricken you feel grief stricken and I think after you lose someone particularly because I was very much trying to look after my mum you know they'd been married for you know six almost 60 years you know and I was I think most of my concern was making sure she was okay so I sort of took over everything I'm an only child as well so you know I was one taking care of the funeral arrangements and, and doing all the practical stuff and death certificates and all of that type of thing and you kind of you, you have to get on with that. And I think it takes you a little bit apart from the, from the whole grieving process. And I'm sure a lot of people would say the same. And of course, because we were still still on the edge of the pandemic, you know, even, even things like organising the cremation and stuff took longer than they should have done. And, and it was it was really difficult. And I think it's not sometimes till a bit later where you like, you know, you pause for a moment and, and one little thing will set you off. Um, but I think writing the book was quite cathartic in that way as well, you know, because it enabled me to think about, my loss and then the characters I could put a lot into that and also you know lots of people sadly tragically lost family in the pandemic for various different reasons um so you know it it is a book in a way about that and about how those left go on and and go forward when you know the worst things happen Mm. yeah I just wonder is is writing a wall against grief or or can writing be sometimes a you know, a, a, a kind of backdoor for grief to take you by surprise because there is always an element of the subconscious, isn't there, to creating? Mm. And it, it feels like it could be either a defence or a, a kind of chink in your armour. I think it could be both, really. I think it can be both. I think you can get it out by writing about it. And I think you can write things that, you know, I also write about a mum, you know, Meg is a mother who has lost her daughter. Mm. Um and bits of that made me cry because I, I very much put myself in, you know, I've got a young daughter and then I very much thought about that when I was writing Meg's, Meg's parts as well. So I think it's, it's both. I think it can help get stuff out. Writing is a great way to get stuff out and deal, I think, sometimes. It can be quite cathartic. 
but yeah, you can you can find those things. You're writing something, and then you find yourself crying for no reason. But yeah. then I, I do that quite a lot anyway, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not just writing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, during the pandemic, it was a weird thing. I I had to turn to my wife one day. It was like, what's up with me? Like, I didn't I didn't suffer any kind of you know personal loss in the pandemic. You know, thank thankfully, I'm one of the lucky ones. But I would. Yeah. That just the kind of the psychic mass of it all, I think, even though yeah. I was all right. In, I mean, I was at home, my wife, I was okay, but I would be checking Instagram and I'd see some like cute video of like a dog doing something and I'd be on the verge of tears. It was like it was there all the time, you know, just ready to go. Heightened emotional anxiety. And I think a lot of people said the same. They felt much more emotional Yeah. because um, it was, you know, the first sort of something, dealing with something like that. No, we've not sort of really dealt with that situation before. And I think everyone with this, even if you thought you were ticking along okay, which I did for a long while, I think there's this underlying anxiety because things are not normal. Mm. There's this stuff going on. You're trying to process it and deal with it. but And your, your brain's kind of doing that in the background all the time. Yeah, it was quite the time. Um, <laughs> wow, what a triple way to put it. <laughs> anyway. Um, it it's is it's how we do, isn't it? Because, you know, yeah. it's how we do. It's why we laugh at things. And, you know, either the, it's why we do, you know, dark humour, isn't it? We, you know, we, I think you have to. You have to have that, you know, sort of way of coping with stuff. Yeah, particularly as Brits, because we have no moral kind of spectrum, no, no <laughs> emotional spectrum. It's either like we're depressed or we're laughing. Yeah. Um, no. Not not to hammer the point, and I, I will move on because I don't want to dwell on the, your personal loss, but it, it did strike me as interesting that the only father figure of any real note in the drift is Hannah's father, uh, this yeah. Professor Grant who is a cold-hearted monster. Mm. He has almost no humanity, <laughs> even towards his own daughter. Yes. And I, I, I made a note to ask, was that essentially you trying, I suppose, to distance yourself from thinking about your own dad? Was it just like, right, let's do something different here to get away from that? It's interesting, actually. I, 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 I'm not sure I've thought of it that way myself, to be honest. Um, I don't know. I, maybe not consciously. I don't know, you know. Um, I was describe my dad sometimes as, as very much like the the, the father in in Mary Poppins, because <laughs> <laughs> he was because my parents were, were quite old fashioned, um, and you know I loved my dad and I know he loved me, but he but he wasn't somebody who was particularly I would say um, prone to showing his emotions. Perhaps you know I think when, when my first book was published, he was sort of like giving very sort of hmm, yes yeah <laughs> read it quite good, you know, which is high praise, high praise indeed. Um, and I always used to say, you know, it's, it's he might not say much, but when he says it, you know, he means it. Mm. Um, so, you know, I don't think necessarily that it, it certainly wasn't a conscious thing when I was doing it. Um, so, but, but, you know, our mind does strange subconscious things. So, so who knows? Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe I did just avoid perhaps writing about the, the dad issue in the book because I thought it, it might be too much. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess I always write books as well in a way that, you know, my dad was a great reader. He loved reading books. And so, you know, one of the biggest shames is, well, not the biggest shames, but I always think it's such a shame he isn't around to read the books I've written since, you know, because yeah. you know, he, was, he was very proud of um, my writing and he, he did love to read all the books. So, you know, there's a, a kind of like, oh, it's a shame he didn't get to read this one. It's a shame he didn't get to see the Burning Girls, you know, being made for TV. I think, you, you know, you do that a lot when you lose someone. You think it's a shame they're missing out on this. And it's actually, you know, not a shame because they they don't know, you know, you're you're feeling sad that you're not able to share that with them. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. I, I one of the real pressures in my life to finally get a book finished and, and 
terrifyingly, when we last spoke, you were giving me advice on on how to do that, and I've still not done it. But so that that's it's probably terrible advice. So. <laughs> um, uh, I actually flouted your advice, but we'll, we'll we'll come back to that. But one of the things that drives me is. I really want my dad, he's 86, my old man. I want him to see the de- the, the dedication. Do you know what I mean? I want him to see that this is yeah, for my dad. That yeah. really matters to me. Um, yeah. But anyway, moving on to the fictional. So Hannah's dad, this Professor Grant, right? Yes. He's a great window into this book thematically because he he may be a cruelly pragmatic man. Yes. There's a whole story about puppies that I was like, oh, God. Um, but, <laughs> but, but the pandemic, if anything kind of exposed how, for better or worse, sometimes mm. cold pragmatism is the only recourse in extreme yes. times sometimes. Yeah. Now that's that's something that runs through apocalyptic fiction. Um, but yeah. it's kind of in a, in a nutshell in, in the drift. And there's a line, science saves people, not love. And yes. reading your book, I want to ask you about your stance on that. Because... Mm. Science is not presented as necessarily a a healthy sphere in the drift. Yes. Or, or have I got that wrong? What's your take on on that? Science saves people, not love. Well, I mean, I'm I'm a big sort of I say a big fan of science. I'm you know I'm fully supportive of science versus um, emotion or God, whatever it is you want to look to. You know, in, in dark times. Um, but I think I think it's it's probably that lesson in it. It's you you have to be careful how far you go with everything. Mm-hmm. I think there's a theme in the book that you know when you know you, you do things you do things for the greater good. You know a lot of a lot of unfortunately bad things happen, which which started off as being for the greater good. But how much of a sacrifice do you make? You know how 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 big a sacrifice do you have to make for the greater good? Becomes I think that the elite few. You know, yeah. what what are the repercussions of that? And I think, you know, with any form of science or when you're, you're dealing with something that, you know, you have to be quite clinical about. Um, I think there's a danger that you, you can lose sight of the humanity of it all. Um, you know, I, I have a huge amount of respect for people who work in the in science, you know, I, you know way, way past what you know, I could ever do. But I think. You know, it's, it's sometimes it does take a certain sort of person. I have a friend who um, we were always like kind of polar opposites um, in that I was always very creative and, and writing and, and, and arts and all that. And she always wanted to go into the sciences. She was she was the kid who used to pull the legs off insects and wings off flies to see what happened. Now, I'm not saying that all scientists have that streak in them, but there was certainly much more of a being able to cut off the emotion um, side to her I think than there ever would be with me um I remember we were once having a discussion with someone another friend who was a vegan because 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 she worked she worked for a big you know pharmaceutical company um and I remember we were talking about animal experimentation at the time um you know another cheery subject and she would describe how you had to basically dispose of the guinea pigs when it was their time to go um and I think you have to in a way to be a good scientist I'm not saying this is true of everybody but in certain fields I think you have to be able to cut off from the emotional side and think of that cl- and have that clinical clarity, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's necessary. I think it's necessary for, you know, perhaps surgeons as well. Anybody who works in that field, that there has to be a point where they, they cannot think of the person as a person, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because otherwise it would cloud their judgment. So I think that can be the danger with science. You know, by God, we need it. And we've made some amazing discoveries. 
but there has to be that balance of humanity with science. You know, we, it, something can make sense on a purely scientific or logical level, but then that person might not be thinking of the emotional repercussions with things. And I think, yes, we did see that in the pandemic. You know, um, I tend to think that, that science made the best decisions it could. With hindsight, would we have done things differently? I think perhaps, you know, you could ask that of every country and every leader, whether some things were done in, in the right way and whether we took into account other things that we should have done. But, you know, that's the glorious benefit of hindsight, isn't it? You know, hindsight is pretty cruel. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that lockdown showed us, and, and weirdly, which is such a good, knotty problem for fiction to tackle, um, is that the way that suddenly these these thoughts that we'd held as sacrosanct pre-pandemic yeah. suddenly became mutually exclusive or in conflict. So, you know, for example, things around bodily autonomy that every progressive person in the in the world mm. would have been wholly with, you know, body autonomy suddenly became sublimated to the needs of vaccination and, and things like that and and, and you know and, and great responsibility and all those things things suddenly like they before came into conflict you know or personal freedoms etc and and there's a great line in the drift where one character kind of says necessity is the mother of invention but it's also the father of fuck you <laughs> and and then you 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 kind of frame people you say in different positions where some people treat some people see the way we treat the dangerous infected as no different than Jews in the Holocaust. And recently, I a few weeks ago, I spoke to an author called Stephen Markley about his book, The Deluge, with this big epic tome about the about climate change. And that that dealt with with similar things, the way that mm. these unshakable democratic principles are becoming a little shaky in the when you get to the scales of the problem of global peril and that sense of like ethical unsurety and, and moral unmooring, it feels really thick in yeah. the drift. And your characters here feel far more damaged and more dangerous than I'd expect having read your previous work. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I did want to, I think, I, I, I didn't intend to do that when I was writing The Drift, but but I did. And I think, yeah, informed by all those things we went through during the pandemic, writing stuff about, as you say, the, the, the infected who, you know, as, as part of sort of trying to find a cure, you know, they find that, you know, they, they can use um, sort of plasma and then basically the infected for their own good, because, you know, they can't be left to roam and that, you know, they could be dangerous, are sort of housed in these seclusion centres, you know, to mm. kind of keep them safe and look after them while also trying to find a cure. And it's that idea of lots of things might start as a, hey, we're doing it for your own good. And it's just, you know, it's also for the greater good of humanity as well. But very quickly, there can become a dark side to all of that, can't there as well? And and, and that's, you know, what I wanted to look at as well mm. within the book. And yeah, the characters are sort of very damaged by it. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, going back to what you were saying about, you know, the bodily autonomy and everything else. I think, you know, we, we understand why, you know, with things like encouraging people to get vaccines and so on and so forth is a good thing. What we, what we ideally want to do is to give people all the information so they freely want to do this themselves. You know, that's in an ideal world, that's that's what we want to happen. And unfortunately, sometimes I think decisions can be made for the right, for what seem like the right reasons. But then sometimes the people making those decisions aren't perhaps the best people to be making them. Does that also make sense? You know, what can start is we're doing this, you know, for your own good, we're doing this to protect people, you know, we want everyone to sort of get vaccinated or whatever. You sometimes have to look at the people making those decisions and and occasionally worry about 
how much power they are granting themselves. And I think that's that's something that did come to light. I mean, I'm, I'm not at all a huge conspiracy theorist. Um, and, you know, when I was writing this book, which, you know, it might seem as if I'm sort of coming down against sort of vaccine stuff in it in some ways when I talk about, you know, what happens in the book. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of talk quite honestly about sort of my, my opinion on it. Um, my dad actually died about a week after having his AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, he suffered a massive stroke um, and, and he didn't recover. Um, and from somebody who was very pro-science and pro-vaccination, because, you know, I, I do believe in science and scientists. Um, I do believe not just looking out for myself, but hopefully protecting other people, which was kind of what I believed was a reason to get, you know, vaccinated for. It wasn't necessarily for myself. I didn't, you know, necessarily think I was particularly at, at high risk, but, you know, I'm very pro-vaccine in, in all sort of ways. Um, and that gave me, you know, a, a slight moral dilemma because obviously myself and my mum continually questioned whether if he had not had the vaccine, whether he would still be with us today. But we also had to balance that up against the fact that my dad was 86 hmm. and he was in very poor health and COVID had just got into his nursing home. So we have to say rock and a hard place. If he'd caught COVID, again, he probably probably wouldn't have made made it through. Um, so that whole idea of being very divided on these things was was, was very key to me in a way, um, because I can see both sides of it, perhaps, you know, more clearly than maybe other people. And, you know, a lot of people would expect me after that experience to be very perhaps anti-vaccine. Uh, but I'm not. I'm still very pro-vaccine because I said at the time, you know, everything can have a side effect, even if it's a one in a million. Unfortunately, somebody still has to be that one in a million and they still have a family, you know, they still have people who care for them. And I think sometimes that's the way we have to look at things. And and again, that comes back to maybe some of the characters in the, in the drift having to have this slightly more fatalistic or, or, or survivor's view of things. Because I think when you go through awful stuff and bad things happen, um, you, you have to kind of, you have to find a way to move on and get on. And, and I think you do that by telling yourself you did the best you could in the circumstances and, and, and other people did. And, you know, you can't necessarily have done things differently. Um, so, you know, as I say, it enabled me in writing the book in some ways to, to examine all of those ideas about, as you say, you know, the, the power that, you know, certain people might have in these circumstances, how we use that power wisely, um, and how a lot of things that start off at, sold to you or being presented or even done in a good way can become twisted and can become a bad thing and, and I think quite often it's like you know we don't go into things wanting to cause harm people politicians those in power scientists don't start off by intending to cause harm but sometimes something happens along the way and then something that started being a good idea or for the greater good <laughs> kind of stops being that and I, and I think the book hopefully examines that in a way as well and I'm making it sound like it's a, a terrifically heavy book there and I know that was probably all quite heavy but I, I do like to be honest about things um but it's you know it's I think it's good to examine where these things come from you know at its heart it's hard it's still a, you know fast-paced thriller and mystery but you know it, if it can examine other subjects as well I think you know great great fiction should be able to encompass all of that I'm not saying, you know, I feel like I'm saying, my God, this is great fiction. Good fiction should be able to, you know, raise all those questions as well within a good story. Well, exactly. It is a fast paced thriller. It is for all the fact that we're talking about horror and it's incredibly, incredibly dark, this book. Mm. You know, it is still kind of crime thriller pace to it. Um, yes. And as you say, you know, you, you don't just have one 
lock room mystery. You you have three on the go. Um, yes, I like, I, mean, I like to make things tricky for myself. I was going to say <laughs> that that must have been quite the logistical challenge in itself before we even got to the world building. Yeah, it was, it was, and, and but I loved, I, that's what I loved about it, as well as sort of the emotional stuff with books. I do like the technical aspect of writing, of constructing a plot, and, and you know, each book, I, I like to sort of set myself different obstacles and make it a bit tougher for myself. Um, and this one, yeah, it, it was, it was important to have sort of that, you know, that each, I say each story to have that sort of fast pace, those cliffhangers, you know, that wanting to get to the next. And, and it, it's quite cruel in a way, because, you know, you, you hopefully I'll you know, leave you with a cliffhanger in one segment, and then you've got to read two other chapters, which will each leave hmm. you with a cliffhanger to get back to the other one. And But and I wanted that pace throughout, really, to, to drive that narrative and, and keep those pages turning and have people sort of on the edge of their seats as to what's going to happen next. And, and it was, I think, writing each of the separate strands of the narrative was actually the simplest part. The difficult part was knotting them all together mm. and making sure that they they flowed and the timelines worked and you know kind of the pacing worked to kind of get to the you know the conclusion and the reveals and that you know enough breadcrumbs were dropped in different stories you know so that when you get to hopefully some of the reveals you go oh god of course of course or you know you have your suspicions start to grow and you're desperate to find out if what you think is right. Well, you said before that you hope it feels like a bigger novel than your previous work. And, and it does. It feels like it's, the scale is kind of, you know, global, mm. I suppose. But it's a bit of a, bit of a paradox because as much as it's probably your tightest novel in terms of the setting and the parameters of the scenes, it's, yes. got, the, it's got the largest scale and the largest consequence, I suppose, of all your books. Yeah. But it still is a 300-page novel. It's not massively long. And you cram no. in a hell of a lot of characters because you're basically giving <laughs> me three different stories. Yes. How, were you worried about that, about readers knowing who was who or having time to familiarise ourselves? Because I'm writing a book at the, or was trying to, one of the books I was trying to write featured a lot of characters in mm. different parts of a setting. And I thought, is it going to be clear who's who? How did you manage yeah. that? Um, it was it was one thing certainly that my my editor and agent were a little bit worried about when I first started writing it, and, and I comforted them by saying it's okay. I kill a lot of them off quite quickly, <laughs> so we, we narrow the cast down quite yeah, fast. I, I suppose you do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that was that was sort of the, the get out really, um, and so I, and I knew that I, they couldn't be sort of more than sort of X amount kind of going forward in the book. Um, so yeah, it was it was a little bit of a, a concern to start with. Hopefully it. It isn't too confusing and people get can get a grasp quite quickly as it goes on. I mean, it's interesting as well because I was speaking to that the drift's been optioned, um, you know, for hopefully for a television series. And it's interesting. It's the exact opposite when you talk to production companies, because they often say that, you know, they, ha they have to add characters mm. when they do adaptations. They like a big cast. Um, so it's almost the opposite thing entirely. But, yeah, it, it was it was a concern. And I was. I was a little bit like, oh, yeah, I hope people can get a handle on it. But, you know, as I say, we, 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 we do try and, you know, kill a few off quite soon. So you're left with a more core cast of characters as you go on. <laughs> yeah. And one of those characters, we, we, well, we've talked about Professor Grant, who is like one kind of, you know, the, the dark yin to this story. Yes. And, and for me, the, the, the yang, although he's in many ways just as scary, is the character of Carter. Who is this? This yes. kind of guy who's living in this this shelter on top of a mountain, um, with a very mysterious past. Yes, I often talk about anger on this show almost as much as fear, 
And and I think that sometimes narrative anger is a pose. Sometimes it's something that is a bit more authentic and goes deeper. You said you enjoyed re- writing this book, and I wholly believe you, but it reads like a very, very angry book, if you don't mind me saying oh, so. Interesting. <laughs> Particularly through the character of Carter. And there are, there are several scenes of pretty extreme violence. Um, like one, for example, the without spoiling this, there's, there are some people we'll refer to as subjects. Um, and at one point, Carter kind of takes a gun and kneecaps one of these subjects mm. um, who yeah. is in the middle of a particularly abhorrent act. And yes. that entire scene felt to me like a purging on your behalf. Now, I'm running the risk of psychoanalyzing you too much today. Apologies. But <laughs> is there any truth to that? Or was it just you really reveling in having a blank canvas that you could unleash hell on? <laughs> I think there was a large degree of that. I, I, I did find myself... I, I did. I wrote this book. The best way of describing it is I wrote the drift as if I was not under a contract to a publisher. I wrote it as if... Because you're quite conscious of that with books sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you do hold back occasionally. I wrote it as if I'd never written another book and I didn't have anything to, to kind of, you know, think, you know, worry about pleasing anybody about. I wrote it purely for me. And I think that's why I kind of just let loose on it. Um, so it, maybe it was, maybe it was just everything coming out really, you know, in this book without any restraint. And and Carter is, is an angry character, I guess. I still, I, I, I'm always fond of all my characters, you know, and, and, and even if they're not particularly likable, but I really identified with, with everything that he was doing. He's kind of like in a world where there are, you know, far fewer rules and far fewer, you know, ethical. Well, there are ethical dilemmas, but there's there's not, you know, there's not a, a policeman waiting around the corner to come and arrest you. There's, you know, very much a case of vigilante justice. And in that scene in particular, you know, he kind of justified in a way in what he, he did because he was, was angry on behalf of someone else, I guess, too. So, yeah, the, the, a lot of the characters are quite angry. Um and maybe it was a great way of getting a lot of stuff out. Because I did, yeah, I did really let loose. And, and there's a lot of stuff in this book that I wouldn't have got away with putting in any of my other books or even tried to. But I, I felt I could in this one. So, I, yeah, I just went hell for leather on it, really. And it felt good, <laughs> I have to say. I was kind of taken aback because I've read your your previous stuff, obviously. And whilst the crimes in your previous books are dark, the mm. behaviour of our protagonists, on the whole, you know, lean towards the angels because I think I think the dictates of crime fiction not not demand that, but lean that way. You know that it's a largely yeah. conservative genre. It's about re-establishing yes. the status quo, isn't it? You know, it's about something yeah. has gone wrong in the order of things. Here is this, this person who will find the culprit and put things right. That's a kind of inescapable yeah. framework for crime fiction, no matter how many ghosts you throw in. There. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas, when you end the world, all of a sudden justice <laughs> means a very different thing. It's true. Um, and, it, and it was kind of fun, but also a little bit disconcerting to see you let rip. <laughs> <laughs> My God, this is what she's really like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I was like, wow, there are, there, there are hidden, hidden dark depths here that the, the vicar in The Burning Girls perhaps didn't quite plumb. Yeah, I was, I, no, I was honestly a bit shocked. And that is a compliment yeah. on this show. You know, I'm not... This is not the Mary Whitehouse experience. This is, 
Um, we, we like I wanted shops. people to have that reaction. Yeah, yeah, I wanted people to have that. I wanted to, to go further and, and for people to be shocked and surprised. And it's like I've said, I've, I've, I, and I, do, I think perhaps one thing that I have certainly learned, you know, coming out of the whole pandemic without sort of wanting to go backwards in the conversation is that, you know, life's too short not to do stuff that you want to do. I, 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 I wanted to write because I love writing and I didn't want to be constrained by what I could write. And this book allowed me to be completely free. And I loved writing it in that way. And it made me realise that, you know, you have to push for the, the ideas you love and write what you really want to do, because that's what it's all about, really. And I've got no interest in sort of going backwards on what I'm writing or just writing to stick to a certain genre or formula. Um, and yeah, that, that's why it was so enjoyable, despite it being so dark and brutal and everything else with the drift. It was so enjoyable to feel free to write it going forward that's kind of my resolution sort of with with all of the books so that yeah, even if even if my sort of agent or publisher kind of go a bit like oh not sure i'm like trust no please let me go with it let me go with it <laughs> and, and they are they are pretty good actually i've got to say they, they are really good um and very supportive and they've really got behind the drift to be fair my, my american editor i do remember when i submitted the first draft to her just sent an email back they went Holy fuck. <laughs> that's that's a good thing. Good thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, what? so do you feel genuinely a bit more unleashed, I suppose, going forwards? Would you want to write more speculative fiction or are you, return, are you craving a return to gothic crime thrillers? No, I, I, I love world building. I really, really do, I have to say. I mean, because it's incredibly freeing as well. Because, you know, you, you don't have to worry as much about kind of the rules of the mm-hmm. world. You can make your own rules. And the new book is very much in that in that vein, too. Um, though it's probably a, a closer mix of the, the previous stuff I was doing and the kind of perhaps a new direction that I'm going in. Um, but, but I, yeah, I, 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 who knows? I would never say sort of each new idea and new book, I like having a fresh playground. And, you know, one of the other ideas I write in the future might well be sort of a, a, something similar to The Chalkman, who knows? Or again, it might be something completely different. The next couple of books, the ideas I've got for them are both quite wonderful and wild and weird. Um, and, and for me, that's just so much more interesting. And each mm-hmm. one is, is you know, a, a new adventure. And I'm hoping, you know, I hope I take the people that enjoy my books along with me. Yeah, I think you will. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by the reaction to this book. Um, I mean, what what the hell do I know? But it, it feels like it is the perfect admixture of your tone and your voice and your kind of tight plotting with a slightly different, yeah, you, you know, mise en scène or, or or background or whatever. This is the idea. Yeah, I, I think I think you'll capture new fans and take the ones you've got with you. I do. Yeah, I hope so. So far, the reaction's been good, which is which mm. is great. Even those who were like, "This wasn't what I was expecting," but I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> I really well, enjoyed it. To lighten the mood a little before we finish, I, I do just want to point out that I was really impressed with one particular detail, uh, which I thought was beautifully British, in that you suspend a cast of characters in a ski lift with a potential murderer uh, and the world ending outside, and then you devote an entire chapter to the fact that one of them needs to take a crap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> enough books do this and I think you know when you've got a character trapped in that situation it's going to be something that comes up so I kind of wanted to kind of keep it you know keep it real 
Yeah, very much so. And I, it was like a weird sort of comedy of manners in the middle of an, an apocalypse, which, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. But weirdly, you also went into a kind of real sort of character development moment where you realise who in that lift is, is a nice person who's got compassion and who doesn't. It's, yes, yeah. It's quite, it's quite, I, I hope that's in the TV show anyway, if it does get adapted. Um, <laughs> speaking of adaptations, um, be- before we close... Great that this has been optioned because I do think it will lend itself like perfectly to this kind of peak TV HBO type thing. Because I'm a bit of a a nerd for coming up with like witty comps, you know. Um, And all the way through this, I just kept thinking with the kind of the the weird intriguing backdrop and the closed room situation. Yeah, it really felt like if if the TV show Lost was was (laughs) smashed into. The, the the first instalment of the Saw franchise, <laughs> right? Lost meets Saw. That's my that's my kind of comp for this, and you can do with that what you will. But what's the current situation with the Burning Girls? Because according to IMDb, you've got Samantha Morton attached to play Jack, and David yes. Dawson from The Last Kingdom, yeah. one of my favourite character actors. Is that all? kosher information what what's the timeline it's, what's it's happening it's, it is wrapped as they say oh yes. wow i'm behind the times when it comes yes. to tv it is, it is in post-production at the moment yeah so yeah um as david dawson rupert graves is in it um and i'm trying to remember all the cast now and i get hopelessly hopelessly lost ruby stokes is playing Flo. a brilliant other brilliant young actor called conrad khan is playing wrigley it's it's yeah it's a really really good cast and when's it supposed to hit our screens I think it will be autumn this year. Right. Um, I, I was lucky enough to go to the set a couple of times last year and it, it was looking really, really good. It was, it was really exciting. Um, yeah, post-production till April. And then because it's that kind of wintry, creepy mm-hmm. kind of drama, I think it will probably be autumn time. Yeah, which is exciting and terrifying, oh, it's got, obviously. <laughs> it's gonna, is it going to be Sky Atlantic? Is that right? No, it's Paramount Plus. Ah, Paramount Plus. Oh, sorry, I'm I, I'm really good on the books, and I, it's clear that I know nothing when it comes to anything else. I I have all the information oh, at my fingertips. There's so many the streaming channels, isn't there? It's like yeah. yeah so it's, it's Paramount Plus. So it's yeah, it is it is exciting, but I say also a bit scary as well. <laughs> is the, is the sense that that's going to unlock lots of other adaptations? If it's if it's I don't know. I mean, you, you always hope so. TV's so weird, isn't it? You know as. Uh, it's, it's a strange one. You can never tell. I mean, mm. the Chalkman was was optioned, you know, with one production company for blooming ages and we never really got anywhere. And then we let that go. And it's actually now with the production company that have just done The Burning Girls, as is The Drift. Um, and, and sometimes things happen quickly. The Burning Girls happened incredibly quickly for TV, it, really quickly. It doesn't normally happen that fast. So you just don't know. Hopefully, it would be nice to think it sort of gives everything else a bit of a boot up the backside. Um, but we, we shall see. I say, you know, it, 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 it's a strange world TV. I know I've just heard from another author who was supposed to be having something made for Netflix and now it's just not happening. I think someone was saying about Netflix to me, it, you know, literally you can have one person give a green light to something one day and then the next week they're gone and someone else dumps the project. It's TV and film, I think, is a strange world. But yeah, it'll be good. I, you know, it's, it's nice to sort of have stuff optioned and it's going to be really exciting to see the Burning <laughs> Girls on screen. But, you know, ultimately sort of I write books um, but, you know, it's icing on the cake, isn't it, if something like that happens, I always think. I think that's a healthy approach. I was speaking to yeah. Grady Hendrix um, last week, who who has got a lot of irons in the fire with TV adaptation. And he said, yeah. like, you know, 
TV adaptations, it's like salmon spawning. Only a few people make it to the finish line. The rest get eaten by bears. And I think that, that probably is, is a, a working metaphor. It's probably metaphor. a good summary of it, yeah. yeah. You know, because it doesn't cost them much to option stuff in, in their world. Mm. It's not a lot of money. Yeah, I had one with quite a big production company, the other people, um, and that's not with them anymore now. Because the problem is, that science, the lesson I've learned sometimes, it's very easy to get suckered in by the like, big American production companies. And, and you know, they, they'll tell you everything you want to hear. <laughs> it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's... <laughs> Um, but of course, you're just one of many, and it doesn't cost them them much to keep you option for a while without much intention of doing anything with it. So it's yeah, it's it's an odd one. And I, but I, it, when stuff's optioned, I'm always like, this is this is great. But I try not to get too excited because you just never know if it'll it'll happen or not. Yeah, as you said, you you write books. That's what you do, and presumably you read books yeah. as well. So here's your chance. As I ask everyone, yes. can you recommend a book for my listeners that you think they should read, and tell us why? I can. And my reading has been absolutely appalling recently. I'm, I'm so slow. And, I, and when I'm writing, quite often I don't read a lot of fiction. I try and read other stuff because I just don't like to get distracted. Um, but I, there was a book I read earlier, well, not earlier this year, last year, because I don't know what year it is anymore. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a proof of. Um, and it's a book called Sign Here by an author called Claudia Lux. Um, and I loved it because it's I, I love books that are different, you know, and I knew I'd, I knew I'd like this one. I kind of knew even before going in because um, it's basically it's about um, a deal maker in hell, a guy called Piotr, I think that's how you pronounce it, Trip. Um, and he's basically he makes deals with people for their souls and he's on the cusp of a big promotion. If you can get one more member of this, this wealthy and not very nice family called the Harrison family to sell him their soul, because um, basically he's worked his way up through the many levels of hell and he's seeing a way to kind of pretty much maybe get out. Um, but obviously this kind of doesn't go to plan. And it turns out this family have a lot of dark secrets. There's a lot of other stuff going on with other people he works with in this kind of hellish kind of environment, quite literally. Um and it's it basically it combines lots of stuff I love like it's kind of like it's incredibly dark it's very very brutal in places it's got a lot of dark humor it's very funny as well but it's also a mystery you know speculative fiction and horror and it's all kind of mixed up in one um and it's, it's utterly brilliant I think I, I I have got a little quote on the back here that says the most dark twisted fun I've had with a book for ages um which you know just about kind of sums it up really it's 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 a twisty mystery but it's so much else as well and it, i don't know if, if you know if you are a fan of an author called michael marshall smith at all yeah very much uh, so yeah read any of his early stuff it really puts me in mind a lot of his, of his weirder stuff if that makes sense okay because it mixed up so many genres um and i really really enjoyed it and it's, it's always nice to read something different you know yeah it's not like another traditional psychological thriller um uh, but but you know I I think it would appeal to people who you know, just enjoy kind of a mystery and a thriller, but it's just got lots more going on. So yeah, Sign Here by Claudia Lux, and that was one that for me I really really enjoyed last year. But it's, it's only just out, out now, I think. Yeah, it came in October. That that one completely passed me by because October, as you can imagine, on a horror podcast is rammed. But I may need to check that one out because that sounds like a really fun read. Definitely. Um, my last question, CJ. I can't remember what you said last time, so you can either repeat yourself or say something new. But what truly <laughs> scares you? Oh, I don't have to think about this last time. Because the fact is that lots of things scare me, from the really mundane to, you know, the, the deeply sort of, you know, things like, you know, anything happening to my, my little girl, which is the biggest fear every single parent has. 
think. And we, we spend our whole lives living in a, in a, in a denial about it, really, because it's too terrifying to contemplate. To things like, you know, I still, if I've got to go out in the dark, you know, imagine that, you know, that some monster or zombie will just lurch <laughs> out of the, the shadows at me. And, and there are some fears that, you know, I never, never, ever shake, like you know, shutting cupboard doors and things like that. So anything happening to loved ones, I think, is the most terrifying thing. Certainly a child that any parent has. That's the ultimate terror, I think. But, you know, I'm still scared of lots of other things, including the dark and zombies. So it's quite pathetic, really. So I've got to ask, what do, what do you mean shutting cupboard doors? Oh, well, you can't you can't have like a, a wardrobe or a cupboard door a bit open, can you? Because like a hand might creep out. Oh, I see. Obviously. So I, I thought you meant I thought you meant the art of the actual act of shutting a door. No, I, I mean, no. you know, like in a in a horror film when someone shuts the door and there's someone like then is then revealed oh, where the door mirrors. was. Mirrors. This is God. Don't give me a mirror thing. I, I, I always imagine that will happen. And and mirrors. That idea that you'll look in the mirror and there'll be someone behind you, that, yeah. that freaks me out for many, 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 many years. I have that know? every single night. If ever I'm in the house of my own and I clean yeah. my teeth and I put my head down and look up, I'm always convinced there's going to be a face behind Absolutely. me. Absolutely. I think we, we read too much and watch too many horror films. This is the problem. Eight, 80s horror <laughs> movies did us all in, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a kind of silly jump scare idea. Your your book is anything else, anything but that. Your book is a sort of excoriating dissect of the human soul at the end of the world. <laughs> Like I said, lost meets saw. But listen, I know you've got to get off now because you've got a busy life to get to. So I'm going to let you go. But but CJ Tudor, thank you for talking scared. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So I hope that episode wasn't too much of a cold plunge back into memories of the pandemic. I'm always happy to talk about the most depraved, depressing things on this show, but I am wary of apocalyptic overload, because, well, life is hard. (laughs) I've got to applaud CJ for her honesty, though, about her father's death and how it impacted both her writing and her thoughts on the vaccine and, and stuff like that. The drift does portray science as quite a merciless almost inhumane process. So I'm I'm glad to hear that she's emphatically pro-vaccine. Now, I assume I don't have many anti-vaxxer listeners, and, and if you are, have a fucking word with yourself, but I can imagine in the maelstrom of news and panic and misinformation how hard it must have been to remain clear-headed in the face of such a personal loss. So, This book may be a purging for CJ, or it may be catharsis. I mean, at times I think I got a bit too psychoanalytic in that conversation. But whatever purpose it served, it also makes for a good propulsive read. It's like a great dark beach read for the middle of winter. And it also made me think of a movie I want to recommend, Frozen. No, no, not that one. There's no talking snowmen, but instead a very taut thriller about idiots being caught in an unlikely situation trapped on a ski lift in freezing temperatures with hungry wolves below. Has anyone anyone seen this one? Let me know if you have. I watched it about 10 years ago and it's still on my mind. And the whole Meg section of The Drift reminded me of it. Definitely seek that film out if you haven't seen it. It's directed by Adam Green. That may help you track it down. Yeah, really worthwhile. A good, fun B-movie with some some nasty shit that goes down. (laughs) Um, Congrats to all the Stoker long-listed authors, many of whom I know listen to this show, many of whom have been on this show. 
It's a cracking field again this year, which just shows how strong and deep and wide this genre is these days. And I'm thrilled that I'll be there this year in Pittsburgh to see whoever wins, win. It's going to be great, and I'm, I'm rooting for everyone. I just can't wait to meet you guys. Speaking of rooting for people, Laird Barron is on the mend, I believe. Things are tough, but I think there's been an improvement. I've been following Mike Davis and John Langan's updates, and it seems like good news on the whole. Remember, you can support Laird and help him get back to the writing that we all need. There's a GoFundMe set up to help him with medical bills, and if you love horror and if you can help, I suggest you do. The link to donate is in the show notes. Otherwise, if you have any thoughts or questions or any impulse to get in touch, you can do. It's always the same. Email to talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram and sometimes TikTok at talkscaredpod. I'm always there or thereabouts lurking and posting photos of books and and my dog. I've had a few emails recently that I've not responded to. One asking me for kind of info on how to read The Dark Tower, which thrilled me. I will get back to people. Sorry, it's been a tough few weeks with work. But yeah, I love hearing from you. Get in touch. Also, subscribe and review. Reviews make a massive difference. And every time I get an email saying there is one, it puts a big smile on my face because you tend to be very kind. And there's the Patreon, of course. Patreon.com slash TalkingScaredPod. A couple of dollars or your local currency and you get loads of bonus episodes. But apart from that, nothing else to say this week. I'll be back next week with this up-and-coming writer you, you may have heard. He's he's called Stephen Graham Jones and he, he's written a book all about slashers. It, it's a sequel, actually, called Don't Fear the Reaper. I'm not convinced. I mean... What the hell does he know about the subject? I, I suppose, you know, we'll give him a chance. <laughs> Until then, take your vitamins, get some fresh air, stay healthy, and play the Dead Space remake. <laughs> Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>